Testing, testing. We will begin shortly. Hi, everyone. We haven't started yet, but I have a couple of announcements. First of all, it is Public Libraries Week. So yay, Public Libraries, which is why we're giving away coffee upstairs and information, which always comes free. Important. Second, uh, we have the used book sale this weekend on Saturday and Sunday and the bonsai exhibit on Sunday as well. And we have on October 29th, Ken Dryden, you've gotten this announcement before, R.H. Thompson and Mr. McGregor, whose first name I cannot recall at this <laughs> at this moment. So those are my main announcements. Uh, Angela's in the back if you have any issues. So without further ado, here is Mr. Hershey Dwoskin with In the Headlines. Let's see, let's see if this one works. Yeah, this one works pretty good. Can you all hear me? <clears throat> so good afternoon, everyone. I um, know... <clears throat> Of course, I spoke about the um, Israel-Hamas-Gaza uh, war last time, and I think it would be worthwhile to to look at a week's worth of events and to see where we are at this point before I go on to another subject, uh, also a subject of really great importance. But let's look at this past week and see what, what uh, new and important developments occurred in this uh, crisis and what didn't occur. So what obviously what didn't occur was an Israeli invasion of Gaza, which they are preparing currently to do with all the mobilization, all the coordination. Um, it's said that the Hamas invasion took over a year to prepare. And, um, uh, and that was a relatively small scale invasion and it still took them a year of planning uh, to assemble all the people, all the munitions, all the uh, everything else that they use, the strategy, the uh, you know the gliders, the boats, the jeeps, uh, all of that, and all the military, all took a lot of uh, planning. It's said that somewhere over 2,000, 2,000 individual Gaza terrorists got into the state of Israel to carry out their, uh, their uh, operation. Um, at least 1,500 of them were killed. So it could well be that there were more than 2,000 that came in. Um, and uh, the last figures that I have were that 1,400 Israelis were killed in this um, attack. The vast, vast, vast majority were civilians. Um, uh, a couple of hundred soldiers were killed, 
but around 1,200 individual civilians were killed, and as well as somewhere over 200 now uh, have been kidnapped. So uh, everyone's eyes are on this corner of the world now, and Israel really faces a dilemma at this point. Up until now, um, I would say world sympathy was more, certainly more with Israel uh, than with Hamas, um, because of the unprovoked attack, because of the barbarity of it, the cruelty of it, because of the kidnapping of it, and also because so many foreigners were involved. I mean, uh, foreigners from 20 different countries were killed. Uh, foreigners from many different countries, at least 12, were kidnapped and are being held somewhere in Gaza. So the whole, the whole foreign press is drawn into this, not just because of the, um, the crisis in the Middle East, but because their own citizens have been either killed or are being held hostage. So that's why the eyes of the world are on this whole, this whole subject. Now, like I said, up until now, the sympathy has been with Israel because of the uh, media um, showing of the attack the uh, destruction that it caused, the barbarity that it caused. And of course, you all know with social media, everyone is on social media. Um, uh, people record their feelings. Hostages were recorded as they were being taken away. And this makes for uh, you know immediate kind of uh, emotional um, response. Uh, however, you know, the Israelis did succeed finally in getting rid of the last of the um, terrorists who had invaded. And now kind of the, the um, initiative is on Israel. Uh, they have not entered Gaza yet, but they have carried out um, uh, bombing raids on what they consider to be military targets, Hamas targets. They destroyed the entire neighborhood of the most wealthy part of Gaza where all of the big shots were living. Um, and uh, they have advanced notice of where um, different Hamas operational centers are located, and they, including in high-rise buildings, uh, including in mosques, and they bomb those. Obviously, you have collateral damage. Obviously, you have innocent people being killed. And obviously, the Hamas are very skilled at the media consultants also. And, uh, you know, they draw... Uh, their correspondence and foreign correspondence over to the areas that Israel has bombed to show the effects of the destruction. So this is all par for the course. We saw, we all we've seen this all before many many times in Gaza. What's new this time are a few different things. One is um, that the nature of the Israeli government has changed this week, with the admission of Mr. Lieberman and his party. Uh, Israel is our home uh, to the coaling, to the coalition government, to the governing body. Mr. Lieberman was a minister of defense at one point. He's got some credentials. And most importantly, he represents the, the extreme secular wing of Israeli society so as to counterbalance the extreme religious wing, which is now in power. So practically speaking, from this time on, um, besides fighting the war, the government will have no other tasks to really do. Um, 
the head of the military, the head of intelligence of Israel has admitted that he was at fault, that the, uh, the whole organization uh, misjudged the situation. And for sure, once this whole business is over, there'll be resignations, uh, if not a government uh, resigning. So that's part of what's been going on. Also so important what's going on is that the United States has shown unequaled support of Israel. So not only did they send two aircraft carriers to the Eastern Mediterranean, not only did they ship them plane loads of replacements for the Iron Dome system, those missiles that shoot down the incoming missiles, because those are made in the States, the, the, um, the, uh, the replacement missiles for the Iron Dome system are made uh, by the Raytheon company. Um, but he also uh, agreed to visit Israel uh, tomorrow. The president is actually coming into a war zone where you know rockets are still being shot. The, the, the initial wave of his Hamas rockets were somewhere around 5,000. They're now shooting out about 100 a day, which is still something. It's not nothing. And the president is uh, going to show up in the midst of this, uh, you know, crisis. Uh, Mr. Blinken, the foreign secretary, the secretary of state was there already. He was meeting in Tel Aviv when a siren went off and he had to evacuate along with everybody else. So the president coming to Israel at this time is really an important gesture of support and friendship and it's also a message to the rest of the Middle Eastern countries that they better not get involved, um, you know, as a kind of a side uh, war or a side attack on Israel. And that's really um, what's important. Now, <clears throat> among the other things that Hamas wished to accomplish by this action was to draw in neighbors and to draw the Palestinian population into this war. And so far, that hasn't happened. Um, uh, the Hezbollah in Lebanon have shot off a few rockets. They have killed a couple of soldiers. But considering what they've done in the past, this is really nothing. Uh, there have been some riots in the West Bank, but also compared to what's happened in the past, also nothing. Um, the Israeli Arab population has been very careful not to um, demonstrate or not to... Um, use this as, a, as an excuse to, uh, to uh, show their um, support for the Palestinians in Gaza. So that was also a failure. So this is all up until now what's happened. The other big piece of news that's happened is the, the Israeli value of the Israeli currency has dropped now to over four, to the shekel, four shekels to the dollar. It was 327 to the dollar a few months ago. What that means is it, it's lost almost a quarter of its value uh, since this war has begun, maybe a fifth of its value. So that's really a very significant uh, economic blow to Israel. Uh, tourism has completely stopped dead in its tracks. Um, the number of Israelis leaving the country is large. Um, and obviously, when people leave the country, there's less demand for goods and services uh, that the country provides. You saw that the um, American government hired the Rhapsody of the Seas, you know that uh, uh, ship, Royal, Royal Caribbean, I think it is, 
to take, uh, they had a 2,400 capacity to take people to Cyprus. And then from there, they could go to wherever they wanted to go. And, um, you know, many Israelis, dual citizens, Americans, Israelis, um, you know, took them up on it. Um, and uh, the country is still living in the middle of a crisis. The big issue facing the, the country now is this. How do you invade Gaza, attack the Hamas, free the hostages, without causing too much, too many um, deaths of innocent people, and without being condemned by the world for doing that? It's a pretty well impossible task, because the Hamas are on their home territory, there's whole networks of tunnels, nobody knows where the hostages are, and... Um, you know, unless Israel wants to completely flatten the entire country, um, they won't in any way uh, be able to do what they hope to do. On the other hand, by going in like that, it's inevitable that the whole world will be pointing fingers at Israel to say, look, at, you know, what they did was bad and what you're doing is bad. And so, you know, two bads are equal to each other. Um, <clears throat> Uh, the, um, the Israeli government has asked the people of Gaza to evacuate pretty close to half, well, half of the population living in about a third of the territory. So here's the Gaza Strip. It's really small. It's about 40 kilometers from here to here and about 10 kilometers from here to here. So, like I said, it's kind of smaller than Montreal than the island of Montreal. So, and there's two and a quarter million people living there. Um, and what the Israelis have said is they want the people to evacuate this part to go to this part. Now, what is in Israel's mind is, if we give people advance notice that they have to leave, and then we go in and destroy the place, if we kill anybody, it's their fault for not leaving. That's the idea, that's the strategy of it. Needless to say, the Gaza Strip is completely crowded as it is. To take half the people from one side and move them to the other side, there's no room for anybody. There's no room for anybody as it is. Um, Israel, of course, most important to, measure, to, to mention is that they cut off all the water, all the food, and all the fuel going into the Strip. So where are the people going to get their food, their water, and their fuel from? So obviously at the very beginning, people have you know, some stored up stuff. But as time goes by, um, there isn't going to be any more of it. Now, the, the news has been reporting on... Um, so by the way, these dots here, this is Gaza City here, the biggest city in Gaza. This one right here. This one is Khan Yunus, which is the second biggest city. Over there. Um, some people have evacuated. Most did. Although they had nowhere to go, they mostly just got out. Some didn't. The Hamas, we don't know where they are. They could be here, they could be there, they could be everywhere. But Israel continued to bomb not only this area, but also this area. So the people say, look, you told us to go here. 
and now you're bombing over here. There's one border crossing here with Egypt, right there. Uh, the Rafa crossing, that's the third biggest city in Gaza, Rafa. This one right over here. This border has been closed. Um, it's open intermittently. The uh, world has been trying to get foreign citizens evacuated out of there and to bring foreign aid into this humanitarian aid into Gaza, you know, food and other supplies. But the border is closed. Um, Egypt has said they don't want to open the border. And what's the reason for that? Well, for one thing, they don't want millions of people crossing in a huge wave. Like they may say, well, only foreigners are allowed to cross the border. But as you could see in the US, what happens is once you know a stream comes through, it's pretty hard to stop them. And Egypt doesn't want to set up uh, refugee camps for a million people you know, on this side of the border. So, so that's one thing. Second thing is that the Egyptian government is very much against Hamas. Um, Hamas represents the kind of opposition uh, to the Egyptian government, and they certainly don't want to do anything to help them or, or to kind of give them cover. And they don't want the Hamas guys to escape with the rest of the refugees if they come out that way. Um, Israel, it's um, bombed this crossing in order not to have it open, in order to not allow people to leave and not allow goods to come in. Uh, but, you know, that is easily overcome. If they want to, they could just fix it up and open the border. So, uh, and there are, you know, there are dozens of tunnels underneath here. So oh, this is the only official crossing. But Hamas has dug tunnels underneath um, the border. And these tunnels are something like 100 feet deep. So, I mean, they're not like a little uh, ditch. Um, the Egyptian government dug a ditch right along the border, a big one, a wide one, like this, big, wide one. Um, and they made it somewhere around 30 feet deep. But you know what? If they're 30 feet deep, all you need is 35 feet to go underneath. And some of the tunnels are 100 feet deep. So there are goods that are still coming into Gaza in a, in a small amount. Um, but it's all run by Hamas. The other thing Hamas did, you might have read about it, is they went into the United Nations depots and stole all the stuff that was there. And then when you, the United Nations, United Nations Refu Refugee uh, Relief Association, uh, UNRWA, uh, they, they, they made a statement saying Hamas came in and took our stuff. And then the same morning, they said, no, we made a mistake. We, we shouldn't have said that. Of course, they shouldn't have said that because, you know, Hamas could uh, just as easily kidnap them. So it's a real humanitarian crisis for the people living in Gaza, the vast majority of whom are not involved in this uh, war. Um, these people are kind of the most miserable of all the Palestinians because they ended up getting stuck in a, in a tiny piece of territory with no real means of... Um, employment, they have the highest unemployment rate in the world, they have no seaport, they have no airport, they have no border crossings to get in or out, so they're kind of stuck there.
Now, what Israel was doing is allowing the Israel had a few crossing points, one here, one here. Two, those are the two big ones. They were allowing 15 to 20,000 daily workers to come into Israel to cross, to work in construction, to work in farms, and to make a half decent amount of money and to go back. And, you know, what Israel was hoping is that these people would be sort of their guarantee for Hamas not to start a war, because obviously if they did, these people would now not be able to earn a living. But Hamas made a calculation. They knew that the economy would suffer. They knew that the country would be bombed. They knew that their own population would, would be in terrible shape. Um, but they made a calculation that it was worth it. Now, when those 5,000 rockets were being shot, everybody in Gaza could see. So it's not as if the people in Gaza didn't know what was going on, because everyone could see the rockets going out, and everybody knew that if Hamas shoots rockets at Israel, Israel is going to hit back. So the people who saw this, who were, who were you know, mature and intelligent, they said to themselves, this is really going to be bad. And sure enough, it is bad. Sure enough, it is, it is bad. Um, uh, like I said, the, the world is now going to start to turn against Israel because Israel is going to be on the offensive. It's not on the defensive. And the offensive is going to be one where um, Israel is going to be fighting with tanks and the Hamas are going to be fighting on foot or, you know, on motorcycles. So the optics of it don't look good for Israel. Um, not only that, but there was a map that was published. I don't know if any of you saw this map. It was a map of all the tunnels that Israel knows about that are in Gaza. And they crisscrossed the whole strip. There were just tons of tunnels, especially, especially around Gaza City, especially in this area here. Just tunnels going all over the place. It wasn't like one tunnel here and one tunnel here. These tunnels are like this, like this, like this, like this. They're all over the place. They have a million different exits, a million different entrances. They're made of steel. The, the doors that close the tunnels are steel doors. The tunnels are all concrete inside. You can stand up in them. It's like a metro without metro cars. And some of the tunnels even have rails in them so that they could push supplies and munitions you know, easily without carrying them. So that's how many tunnels there are, and that's how fortified they are. Um, and Israel has no easy way to, to attack them because they're underground. Uh, they would have to destroy all kinds of buildings on top of the tunnels. The entrances to the tunnels are not located out, out in a field somewhere. They're located in basements of houses. They're located in... Um, um, yeah, basements of houses or base basements of office buildings. So you can't see them from the air. You don't know where they are. So that's why I'm saying this doesn't, it's a grim situation. The Western world understands that Gaza, ha that Israel has no choice but to invade simply because of the damage that, um, that the uh, Hamas did to Israel. So this is a kind of a revenge uh, aspect to it. And it's also a deterrent aspect to it, because if Israel didn't do anything, then Hamas could say, look, we succeeded, and you know we'll rearm ourselves for the next one. 
So that's why Israel is left with two bad choices. To do nothing is bad, and to go in there is bad, because they know that they will lose a lot of soldiers in city combat. Uh, you know, the Gassans have so many of those rocket-propelled grenades, those launchers, they just shoot them on the end of a gun, and it's a rocket, and it could hit a tank, it could hit a jeep, it could hit anything, and they could be inside a building, and you'd never know they were there. So that's why, um, and especially if the civilians do get out of the territory here, it gives the Gazans even more sort of leg room to move around and to um, not, not injure civilians on their side from attacking Israel. So that's why these are um, difficult times for Israel, um, a time when the government uh, was so divided, the country was so divided that um, people were saying we're not even going to show up to fight even if they call us. And now all of a sudden with this, the country is much, much more united, um, but facing a very difficult situation. And how this plays out in the world was, is you know, easy to have a look at. The enemies of Israel condemn Israel for what they're doing. Uh, the Palestinian Authority issued a statement saying, you know, uh, Israel should not be attacking civilians. They never said anything about what Hamas did. Um, uh, you know, Mr. Putin said um, this is all uh, Biden's fault because Biden allowed the Iranians to survive and the Iranians gave weapons to Hamas and now Hamas is using the weapons against Israel. It's for sure that they found Iranian-made weapons. Uh, Israeli found Israeli-made weapons there. Oh, I don't believe it. Uh, and they found North Korean weapons there. Excuse me, just a second. Sorry. My phone never rings. My wife says, bring your phone. I'm like, what for? But I don't know. So they found North Korean weapons. They found Iranian weapons. And of course, lots of homemade weapons, uh, which is the majority of what they make there are homemade weapons. Um, but they found so many of them. They did, Israel did a few raids into Gaza already. Uh, and they found all of these weapons. Uh, you might have seen it on TV. I saw on TV they had a whole storeroom of rocket-propelled grenades and shells and bullets and all kinds of stuff like that. So, so this is not an operation where Israel goes into a refugee camp and there's a few guys with machine guns. You know, this is a much more serious operation and one which Israel is at a huge disadvantage because... It's fighting in a city is uh, is not the same as being able to use drones to pick out you know tanks and jeeps that are going on different roads. Um, you know Hamas has no tanks, they have no jeeps, uh, they have just uh, motorcycles, and uh, uh, you know everything is uh, um, you know is uh, is is hand hand fighting. Anyway, that's the story, but the. Um, the uh, consequences abroad are that the people who are pro-Palestinian uh, have become kind of willing to stand up for their cause, and the people who are pro-Israel are willing to stand up for their cause. And in some cases, the two sides are fighting each other on university campuses and uh, in demonstrations all over the place. Um, and, um, you know, it's... The, the host countries 
want to, on the one hand, uh, permit free speech, but on the other hand, you see what these things lead to. Uh, the six-year-old boy was murdered uh, in uh, Illinois, uh, you know, uh, just because he was a Muslim. Um, in Paris, uh, some uh, Islamic terrorists killed two uh, Swedish uh, tourists. So, you know, these things have ramifications abroad, and that's why you see security ramped up all over the place in, uh, in Jewish institutions all over the in all over the um, you know the world, and in in Muslim ones also. So, it it it's not a good time really for anyone. So I'm going to just check my time here. Okay, we're good. Um, uh, anybody have questions or comments so far? Because, uh, you know, then I'll, then I'll go to something else completely. So in the back there, it's, it's hard. yeah, there, okay, I can see you now. You know what, when I put my hand like this, I can see you because the these lights here are shining right in my eyes. In into Gaza, you mean? How did the Hamas bring all the stuff into Gaza? Well, listen, you know what? Uh, they have tunnels. They, it all came through the tunnels. Most of it came through the tunnels. Some of it came crossing the border by truck from Egypt uh, legally uh, because, um, because Gaza is so small, and crowded. The only way you could build housing for people is to build multi-story buildings, 10 stories, 15 stories. All those, all those buildings require cement. And those cement trucks can be diverted to build tunnels, the, the encasement of the tunnels. So that's how, that's, how that is, that's how that's done. There isn't a cement plant in Gaza. Well, that's right. I mean, once, if you have wrecked buildings, you know, you could recycle the broken cement and make it into, um, by grinding it up, uh, you could remake it into regular cement. Not easy to do, but, but it's doable, you know. Um, so that's how they do it. Um, there's not all that much smuggling that comes in via the ocean, but there is some. Uh, in small boats that has you know that evade the Israeli patrols that can come in that way, um, this way, and uh, and that's it. I mean, uh, there's even been cases. I won't say here, but in the black market, where where uh, Israelis will sell their guns to Palestinians just you know for the money, and um, uh, there's been lots of cases that have been found out like that also. But like I said here, there is barely any contact between the Palestinians and Israel. The West Bank, there's loads of contact. So that's the difference there. Um, somebody else had a, yeah, your hand. Well, well, here's the other. The other issue is the hostages. I mean, the other issue is the hostages. I mean, is families of Israeli hostages are on TV, um, are on uh, every media. 
demanding that Israel bring their people back. If these people are being held in the tunnels, what's Israel going to do to the tunnels? Well, but I, even so, if the hostages are in the tunnels, um, Israel can't throw poison gas in the tunnels. They can't blow up the tunnels. Um, you know, if Hamas says, look, we have 200 tunnels and we have 200 hostages and we have one hostage in every tunnel. So the first person you're going to kill is a hostage if you ever try to come in. So that, that's the dilemma that Israel faces. Sure they did. Well, because they didn't have a war with Hamas before. You know, they didn't have a war with Hamas before. They were, they, Israel was, remember, trying to be on the good side so that they could form relationships with the Arab world, with uh, Saudi Arabia, with the United Arab Emirates. They can't go to war uh, against a kind of, uh, uh, like I said, a David and Goliath situation. The Gazans are the David, and Israel is the Goliath. They have all the weapons. They have the military. They have the drones. They have the complete closure of the Gaza Strip. They have air superiority. They have naval superiority. They have everything superiority. So, you know, um, and and if even if they did, and they have in the past bombed some tunnels that they found out about, but they just dig new ones. Think of it, you know, if 70% if of the people are unemployed and and Gaza and, and Hamas gets money from who knows who, from Qatar, from wealthy Arab individual um, donors, uh, they can pay not much money to get a guy to work eight hours a day shoveling tunnels. Well, it's been Qatar has been the main one in the Middle East. Uh, because they're wealthy. Um, Iran doesn't have all that much money to give, um, but they have been supplying uh, the Hamas with material, with training, with, uh, you know, logistical help. Um, Iran is not, is not let, let's put it like this, if Iran were giving piles of money to Hamas, the Iranian people would not like it because they're suffering so much themselves. So, and, and then there's individuals, individual wealthy oil sheiks who live in Saudi Arabia, who live in the United Arab Emirates, who live in Bahrain. These people are billionaires. So they, could, they can individually, individually give money to Hamas to support the Palestinian cause. That would be the other source of income. You know, plus, of course, there's a huge Palestinian diaspora around the world. There's more Palestinians living outside of Palestine than inside of Palestine. And the money that these people make and get, they can send to, uh, to their relatives who could be Hamas people or who could give it to Hamas people. So that's the other way they get the money from, you know? And once you have money, money always talks. So once you have money, you're able to get a lot of things. And that's how it's done. Mm -hmm. Yeah, oh, yes, sir, over here. The reaction of the Arab world has been a kind of...
Right. I mean, and not only that, but the whole world, if you look at the broadcasts of the BBC, of um, the American networks, they don't say this is an Israeli-Palestinian war. They say this is an Israeli-Hamas war, just to make it uh, make the distinction clear. Um, you know, ha Hamas did succeed, at least on the surface, of stopping negotiations between Saudi Arabia and Israel. So that was a success. Um, but the Arab, the Arab world as a whole, uh, um, you know, there were a lot of anti-Israeli demonstrations in places like Baghdad and Pakistan. But, you know, you didn't see any of these countries sending air forces or sending troops or sending, you know, an aircraft carrier the way the United States has done. So, um, uh, you know, there has been, for the most part, a desire to say, look, stop the fighting, have a ceasefire, give, give, give the people um, who are stuck in, in there, give them, you know, food, water, and, and fuel, because uh, there's no electricity. There's no electricity, there's no water, there's no food. How long do you think the two and a quarter of a million people could live in those conditions? No, they didn't. They said they were going to, but in the end, they didn't. But Gaza has its own sources of water. Uh, the problem is that those sources are, uh, um, uh, are wells, and the water in those wells has become more, more, um, more, uh, more full of salt because the more you pump out of those wells, the more the ocean water sinks in underneath the ground and fills them up. So they have water, but it's really not really good water. But in a, you know, in a pinch, it's the only kind of water they have. Um, so, uh, so that's the situation. And like I said, the longer this goes on, the more you'll see people dying in the streets of, of starvation, the more the world will turn against Israel. So Israel knows this. And what they have to figure out is how do we do something fast before all this ends up on the front pages. Yeah. They are. Yeah. No, it's not equivalent at all. It's not equivalent at all, but it's collateral damage. And if the collateral damage gets high enough, then uh, people in the world obviously are going to see it. The Hamas are very skilled at public relations. Um, they've even created incidents that never happened before. Um, so they're very skilled at that, and they make sure that the world hears about it. And with modern communications, like I said, with Instagram and with all these different uh, venues, the world will see instantly if there's a child who was you know, killed in a, in a, in a bombing raid. So, um, you know, their hope is to get people to be sympathetic enough to them to make Israel stop. Well, uh, you know, Hamas has always said in their charter that they would like to destroy the state of Israel. So that's part and parcel of their political um, and military uh, goals. So they've never said we want to live in peace with Israel. 
you know, to go back to the beginning, uh, you know, and uh, the uh, the emphasis is not put enough on this, that the, the United Nations in 1947 declared that Palestine should be divided into a Jewish state and an Arab state. So that Arab state was Palestine. Had the Palestinians said, okay, we'll take it, they would have had a state already. So, I mean, you know, it's, it's um, you know, what your perspective is depends on what, where in history you would like to start. But the Palestinians had a chance then, and after the 1960s, and after the 1948 war was finished, you had Gaza, which was administered by Egypt, and you had the West Bank administered by Jordan, not administered by, annexed by Jordan, taken over by Jordan. Now, had the Palestinians living there wanted their own state, they could have been marching, they could have been demanding, they could have been going to the United Nations, they could have been saying, we condemn Egypt for occupation, we condemn Jordan for occupation, we want our own country. That had nothing to do with Israel. Israel wasn't there. But they never did that. Only after Israel captured the whole territory, everything from here, down here, down there, then the Palestinians woke up and said, oh, we want our own state now. And it's been the case of that ever since 1967. So, um, you know, and Israel agreed to it. Israel agreed in 1994 uh, in talks between Rabin and Arafat to have a Palestinian state created. It's just that Arafat, in the end, couldn't agree to permanently give up the dream of having all of Palestine, and he couldn't give up the hope of all the refugees living all around the world to say, you're never coming back to your homes. And um, so he just couldn't, and he didn't. And things just went downhill from there. The, you know, the Likud won the next election. They became even more hard against the Arabs, and the rest is history. So that's that. Uh, yeah, in the back over there, yeah. But you can you can you make can, maybe you could take your mask off so we can hear you a little bit. Uh, no, I don't think that. But I think there is a lot of there is a lot of negotiations going on behind the scenes to get foreigners out of Gaza. That's the first thing. The second thing to allow humanitarian aid to come into Gaza. Um, there is a lot of, of that. There's also a lot probably to get Israel to allow the water to come back into Gaza and to allow electricity to come back into Gaza so that you know people's very basic necessities can be met in those ways. Um, a lot of people have generators all around the Middle East, in Lebanon especially, you know, practically every big house has a generator. The generators run on diesel. When there's no more diesel, that's it. So like I say, the first week or two or three or four are the best ones for the people in Gaza. After that, when everything runs out, the food supplies run out, the diesel supplies run out, water supplies run out, um, that's when the suffering is going to be really multiplied over what it is now. So, um, you know, if Israel is going to do something, they better do it fast and, and clean and quick 
because the longer it takes, the more the world will turn against it. Uh, yes, okay, over here. Well, well, the the point the point that the world would make is, where where was Israel defending itself when the Hamas came over? Now that the Hamas is gone, Israel doesn't have to defend itself at all. Hamas Hamas is practically not attacking Israel anymore. Okay, but that already happened. So when you say Israel has to defend, no, I understand. Look. Everybody understands who started it. There's no question who started it. Never mind the whys. The whys, forget about it. Hamas started it. Hamas did what they did. But now, to say that Israel has to defend itself is a bit of a stretch. Because at this moment, except for a couple of rockets, Israel is not being attacked anymore. What Israel wants to do is to take revenge. What Israel wants to do is to eliminate Hamas so that it doesn't happen again. But as I said, the longer and the dirtier this takes, the more the world is going to say to Israel, you're not defending yourself. You're destroying the lives of millions of innocent people. That's what the world is going to see, and that's what the world is going to say. Uh, yeah, uh, hold on, wait, some other people. Wait, 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 wait. Go ahead, sir, in the white shirt there. Correct. Apparently not. Well, they try their best. They try their best, but like I said, you know, if 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 this if Gaza was the Laurentians, they wouldn't be able to do it. Because you can't make tunnels through rock. But it's all sand. It's all real easy to dig, you know? Um, they've got tunnels going all over the place. Um, the Gazans, the Hamas had even dug tunnels into Israel. They found many of them crossing the border, going like this into Israel, whereby that's how they kidnapped this Gilad Shalit. They came in a tunnel into Israel. Some of those tunnels were into Israel by half a kilometer. No, of course not. Of course not. <laughs> like I said before, you know, they buy them. They, they get them from uh, Iran or from, the, uh, from Hezbollah in Lebanon um, or on the free market. Uh, and so long as they have money coming in, there's a whole world of, of arms, arms trade going on. And if they've got, if they've got tunnels going underneath from Egypt into, um, into Gaza, they get them that way. Now, in, in the Sinai, let's just say this here. This is all the Sinai Peninsula of Egypt, right in here. There's a very strong presence of Islamic fundamentalists in the Sinai. These are enemies of Mr. Sisi, the president. 
these are sort of um, comrades of the Hamas in Gaza. They've, they have raided his Egyptian police posts and killed hundreds of Egyptian officers sitting in El Arish in those posts. El Arish is the biggest city in the Sinai. And pretty well, whether these people are gangs, dope smugglers, or whether they're uh, Islamic militants, they're all kind of in the same circle. And you know they, are, they serve as a conduit to get those weapons into Gaza. It all came in through Egypt, except a little bit came in from the ocean, a little bit from here, like not much, but you know, you have boats uh, in the Mediterranean in international waters at night. They can offload their weapons into very, very small fishing boats that go out in Gaza at night. And they, these people could bring them in, not much, but they still, that, that's the other way of doing it. No, not really. No, I don't see it. I don't see it because Hamas is, is not something separate from the Palestinians who live there. They're part and parcel of the same people. So it's like you want to cut off the head of somebody. There's another, you know, there's more people there. What Israel didn't do, I would, and I've always argued this, is that they didn't make people's lives in Gaza good enough so that they would not support uh, this kind of military action against Israel. If they've made their lives so bad that the people say, we have nothing to lose, our lives are finished anyway. There's no way for us to prosper. There's no way for us to get out of this place. You know, we're dead men walking anyway, so we have nothing to lose. And, you know, Israel's policy has always been in that vein, to sort of punish the people of Gaza. And, you know, in a certain way... Um, if the Hamas didn't have at least some popular support, if they didn't have some sort of wider network of people to, cont to, to, to rely on, if they didn't have a wider network of people not to spill the beans, not to, not to um, you know, inform Israel of what's going on, you know, the reason is because their lives were so difficult there, made difficult by Israel. So that's that's... Uh, that's the way the gamble, you know, was done. And, you know, sort of this is what the consequence was. It's not Israel's fault that this happened. But the conditions that Israel created, created the conditions for the support of the people who did this. I, I would put it in that way. Oh, very easily. Very easily. They could have... Well, the, what they could have done was to, um, uh, what they could have, the minimum that they could have done would be to treat the Gaza like the West Bank, meaning that people could work in Israel, people could travel, people could go from Gaza to the West Bank without any problem. Uh, you know, they could have made a road, even not even going into Israel, but going on top of Israel, like a, uh, an elevated expressway, where they would have joined up Gaza over here with the West Bank over here. But remember that the people in Israel, in the government especially, 
Their attitude is, it's all ours. The Arabs have no rights at all. It's all our land. God gave it to us. And we don't want them to be happy. We don't want them to prosper. We want them to be as miserable as possible so they just leave, and then we could take everything. So that's the, that's the attitude of a lot of the right-wing people in, in, is, in the Israeli government. Anywhere, America, Latin America, Great Britain, France, anywhere. There's loads of Palestinians in Montreal. There's loads of them all over the place. Well, uh, you know, on an individual basis, yes, obviously. They're all here, right? They're all in the States. They're all in, in Holland. They're all in France. They're all in, they're all in Kuwait. They're all in Saudi Arabia. No, Palestinians, Palestinians, Palestinians who's from Gaza, from the West Bank, um, they've left over the years, since the 1967 war, they've left by the hundreds of thousands. They've gone all over the place. Yeah. Wow, wow, wow. First of all, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I, at this point, I wouldn't say that these people are all immigrants. These are second generation, in general, immigrants who come to a country, in general, as they get older, all they want is peace and quiet for their families. Their children, who are educated in the native, in the country they're living in, who speak the language of the country they're living in, who know their rights, um, often they're the ones who are the sort of flag bearers and the flag wavers. In general, it's like that. There's always, you know, uh, it, it, it's not the rule, it's not always that way, but in general, that's the way it kind of goes. <laughs> yeah, for the, for, for often that's the case, often that is the case. Um, but let's put it like this. If they wanted to go back to live there, they could. In the West Bank, Gaza would be pretty tough. But even Gaza, they could go back and live there. And some people have. But the lives that they're living abroad are better for them and their families. And so they choose to live wherever they're choosing to live. Um, you know, there are, there are uh, in Western Europe, they're given citizenship just like any other immigrant. But if they go to the Middle East to work in Kuwait or to work in Qatar or to work in Saudi Arabia, they don't have citizenship. They could be kicked out at any time. Um, and if you recall, uh, um, you know, at one point they, they were very angry at the Palestinians in, in the United Arab Emirates and they started kicking them out by, by, uh, by the thousands. So uh, you remember that there is no such thing as a state of Palestine. They don't have a passport. They have a kind of a laissez-passer. They have a kind of an ID paper, uh, but they don't have a passport. So they're not automatically allowed into anywhere. They have to get in, you know, the slow way, the hard way.
Well, they could, they could, but but not not just like that. I mean, um, you know, they could, uh, but you know, you don't have to look at U.S. Look at Canada. We've got, uh, you know, we have so many immigrants or children of immigrants who are ministers in our government. I mean, that's the Western way. You make a kind of a you make a kind of an understanding bargain with these people. We let you come into the country. We let you get educated. You have to adopt our values. To 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 most of them do. By far and away, most of them do. There's some who don't, and the consequences are seen in Belgium, in France, uh, places where they've had these big murders. But but if you if you if you understand this, if you recall. All of those terrorist attacks that occurred in France um, were none of them were done by immigrants. They were all done by French citizens, by um, you know Moroccans born in France, by Tunisians born in France, you know living in the slums, uh, facing discrimination, facing racism, and then they get radicalized by some internet uh, character, and um, that's how it goes. So. Uh, Immigration is not the fault or the cause of all of this. Uh, at least that's the way I see it. Because the reason is because you look at all the other people. You know, you, you say, for example, who knows here how many Muslims live in Canada? We'll start with that. Is it 500,000? Is it half a million? Is it a million? Uh, um, is it uh, more than a million? No, more than a million. There's 300,000 in Montreal. So 300,000 in Montreal. Do you read every single day Muslims rioting, Muslims doing this, Muslims doing that? No, you don't. We had an incident in Quebec City where one guy went into a mosque and killed six people. So there's, there's Islamophobia that goes on. I was in the metro today. In the metro, they have a big sign, let's fight in French, let's fight Islamophobia. There's a picture of a woman with a hijab and a picture of a woman who looks like a Western woman. So, um, you know, they are also feeling uh, kind of um, attacked because they say, look, whatever is going on in Gaza has nothing to do with us. And yet, you know, the six-year-old kid was killed. So, you know, th their experience and our experience are not so far apart in a certain sense. There are some of them who are radicalized, and often, by the way, these people aren't even Arabs. They're Chechens, who are one of the biggest uh, groups of terrorists around, uh, or they're Pakistanis, or something like that. So, um, you know, uh, the, there's uh, more than a billion Muslims in the world, so it's like one, more than one-eighth of the people in all the world are Muslims, so, you know, not all of them are standing up all at the same time and walking to attack Israel. So that's the point. You have to put things in perspective. That's all I'm saying. Um, uh, what, somebody else, I saw loads of hands. I had, I, had such an, I had such another subject to speak about, which I'll tell you about briefly, but I'm not going to tell it. Let's finish this first. Yeah, go ahead.
Well, I don't. Well, Red Cross, uh, I don't think, I, I, let's put it like this. I don't think that the Red Cross are active in Gaza. I don't think so. I'm not sure. But, who, what, but, but what is active is the United Nations uh, Refugee Relief Association. They're the ones who've been in Gaza since 1948. They're the ones who operate all the schools in Gaza that are not religious schools. Um, they have a huge amount of welfare money and welfare supplies that they've been giving out since 1948. They're funded by the United Nations themselves. They have a multi-million dollar budget uh, and lots of employees in Gaza to, to, to hand out relief to these people. And they've been doing it since then, since the beginning. Um, like I said, uh, they have to cooperate with Hamas, otherwise Hamas will shut them down. Um, so if they, if they see that Hamas is doing something wrong, they cannot go online and say, look what they did. They just took a kid out of our school and they beat him up for some reason. They can't do that uh, because they'd be shut down. So they're kind of like uh, unwilling uh, partners of Hamas in Gaza because that's the only way they could operate. Otherwise, the choice is just to shut down completely. Uh, but they have been there. I mean, pretty well a third of all Gazans are getting their daily needs met by the, these people in the United Nations. So they're very, very organized and very active, and, uh, uh, and they're on TV all the time, you know, uh, asking for money sometimes. So, uh, yeah, Red Cross, I don't think so, but, uh, um, you, you know... Uh, the Red Cross doesn't operate in Israel either. It's called Magen David Adom. And in all of the Arab world, they're called the Red Crescent. So it's the same, 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 same basic organization. But they're only for, they're only for health, health crises and health emergencies. That's what they do. But the, the UN Relief uh, Works Agency, UNRWA, they, they, you know, they've been working there in Gaza since 1948. So anyway, uh, any other questions? Yeah. Right. Uh, no, because, well, let's put it like this. Let's put it like this, okay? UNRWA do not run all the schools in Gaza. They only run the non-religious schools in Gaza. Most of the kids in Gaza don't go to UNRWA schools. They go to religious Muslim schools. They ha Israel has long complained 
that the curriculum that is being taught in the UNRWA schools is anti-Semitic. And Israel has, has, uh, has succeeded in getting the world to say to UNRWA, if you keep wanting to get our, the UN money, you have to get rid of the anti-Semitism in your school books, which they kind of did. So in other words, they didn't completely eliminate it, but you know the math questions used to be, if I kill five Jews and you kill five Jews, how many Jews did we kill altogether? So that's a math lesson, you know? So they had to get rid of that kind of stuff. Um, and remember that they are operating in Gaza on the say-so of Hamas, who are the rulers of, the, of that place. And if they want to keep operating, they have to walk that fine line between cooperation on the one hand and, 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 and kind of doing their humanitarian work on the other hand. And it's not an easy line to, to uh, walk. That's 100% that's for sure. Not only that, but if Hamas decides to say, we're going to put our weapons and we're going to put our ammunition in one of your schools, and you better not say anything, and then that school gets blown up, then you know they can show, oh, look, Israel attacked one of the United Nations schools, but it's because Hamas did what they did. And the school cannot say to Hamas, no, this is a school, this is not a war field, it's not a battleground, get all your crap out of here. They can't do that, because they, they could get arrested or, or, or worse. Right, that, that, there is. Because that was what was decided in 1948. And, and it was decided by the United Nations. Not only that, but uniquely among refugees, it was decided that children of refugees are classified as refugees themselves. So in other words, you know, uh, when Israel was created in 1948, there were something like under a million total refugees uh, of Palestinians who were forced out of what became the state of Israel. Uh, there were under a million, maybe half a million. Maybe, let's figure this out. There were, in 1948, there were about a million, there were about six. In 1948, there was about 600,000 Jews and about a million and a half Palestinians total. But those million and a half Palestinians, a lot of them lived in the West Bank to start with, and they never had a move, or Gaza also. So a half a million would be maybe an accurate figure of how many were actually forced out of what became Israel proper. And this half a million is now, you know, mushroomed over to more like three million officially recognized Palestinian refugees. But these refugees are being supported not just in Gaza and the West Bank, but in Syria, in Lebanon, in camps in Lebanon, camps in Syria, camps in Jordan. Uh, they're still getting money from the UN to support themselves for that. And obviously, people who were adult, adults in 1948 are no longer with us. Uh, so this sort of aid has passed on to their descendants, which is, which is very unusual for the Refugee Relief Association, 
whose job it was was to look after refugees themselves, not their descendants three generations down. Because the world, the world likes it that way. You know, that's all. It's the UN. It's a democratic uh, uh, sort of organization. And uh, certain countries have a lot of power. And certain countries have a lot of money. And they're the ones who say, we want this to continue. Or they might say, look, if you do this for me, I'll do this for you. You vote for me on the issue of something else. Uh, you, I'll vote for you on something else. But you vote to keep funding UNRWA for Palestine. That's all. It's a bargain. That's how it ends up that way. Um, so let me just, I, you know, it's, it's, it's past 3 o'clock. I'm going to say something now, which will continue next time. So besides this issue, the most important thing that happened in the world this week was the election in Poland. And I wanted to speak about Poland, uh, give you the whole history of the country and, and um, you know, a, a good outlook about the country because... Um, there are, um, it's such an important country in Europe, being on the border of the Ukraine, being a country that has been ruled for eight years by a right-wing nationalist, um, uh, hung Hungarian-style, Trump-style, Netanyahu-style politician, bending the rules, changing the rules, um, and... Um, they actually got more votes than anybody else, but they only got 35% of the vote. They need 50% of the vote, and they don't have it. So that government is not going to continue, and there will be a center-left government being put into place who is pro-European, pro-democratic, uh, pro-liberal um, values. Um, you know, Poland outlawed abortion completely, they denounced gays. Uh, they, um, uh, you know, they, they did all kinds of all kinds of things. They made it they made it a crime to say that Poland was in any way involved in the Second World War in killing Jews. Just for example, that's one of the laws. So if you say if you say that didn't happen, you you can get put in jail for that. So this new government will you know have a more Western liberal attitude toward the people's lives in Poland. And like everywhere else in Poland, uh, like in the US, the people who live in the countryside are conservative. The people who live in the cities are liberal. But uh, the city of Warsaw had a turnout of 85% in this election. So it tells you how much these people wanted to change from, uh, from uh, the, uh, the law and order party that's been in power up until now. So uh, we'll talk about that next week, I think, for, for starters anyway. Hopefully there won't be any, be any tragic news, uh, you know, uh, on, in other areas to speak about. But I wanted just to mention again on this subject of, of, of trying to control the press and what people say. Uh, one Israeli minister just proclaimed that he wants a new law in Israel, saying that anybody who criticizes the government in this, in this situation that they should be put up for criminal charges. So it's it's um, you know it's straight out of the playbook of uh, Poland, out of uh, Trump. Uh, yeah, and I think it's worthwhile saying what Trump made a speech was this week, right? When he called, um, he said uh, Hezbollah was very smart. 
that Netanyahu was completely a failure. He didn't prepare for this invasion. He didn't know what was going on. And then all of a sudden, the 25% of Jews in the U.S. who were Republicans, they all started calling him up and say, hey, you know, you broke uh, what we considered to be a sacred bond. And uh, Trump says, well, you know, again, it's, uh, you know, uh, he, 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 he ignored what he said before, which is often what he does, and just changes what he said. He said, oh, no, I'm, I'm more pro-Israel than any other politician in the world, you know? So it's easy for him to just change his mind and say that. But I think he's broken a bond that he had with right-wing uh, Jewish people in the United States, and they're not going to forget it. So, um, you know, he, he lost a lot in that way. Anyway, thank you so much. Uh, we'll see you all next week.